This is the Breaker.News podcast for the week of November 19th, 2023. I'm Bob Mackin, publisher of the Breaker.News and host of the Breaker.News podcast. Welcome to edition number 317. The Breaker is your source for news, opinion, and analysis about British Columbia issues, institutions, and influencers. Later, I'll tell you how you can support The Breaker. On this edition, headlines from the Pacific Rim and the Pacific Northwest. I award a virtual Nanaimo bar to a difference maker. And the big deal feature, part two with Eric Kaufman, the Vancouver-raised professor of politics at the University of Buckingham and the new Center for Heterodox Social Science. Professor Kaufman is getting ready to teach a course called Woke, The Origins, Dynamics, and Implications of an Elite Ideology. He joins me from London. But first, is it just me? Is it just me, or did you notice the two big headlines in federal greenwashing last week? One billion dollars from the Trudeau Liberals and EBNDP for what they called a clean, green, lithium-ion battery plant in Maple Ridge. Geopolitical intrigue on the eve of the Apex Summit? Molly Cell is a company owned by Taiwan Cement. Lithium mining requires huge amounts of water and leaves huge amounts of waste. There isn't enough in Canada, so it'll require fossil fueled shipping to the factory. The Parliamentary Budget Officer has estimated that the Trudeau Liberals have lowballed the subsidies for EV battery factories prior to this one by $5.8 billion. Total subsidies, $44 billion. Meanwhile, the federal court struck down the Trudeau Liberal Cabinet's edict that all single-use plastic items are toxic. After the zeal to ban plastic straws and plastic bags, the industry went to court and won. The government may appeal. Single-use plastics save lives. Think of the medical masks and gloves and syringes that have helped us get through the pandemic. This is the Big Deal feature on the Breaker.News podcast. Joining me from London, England is Eric Kaufman, Professor of Politics at the University of Buckingham and the new Centre for Heterodox Social Science. Eric has an interesting career in research and teaching about cultural politics, ethnicity, national identity, left-wing ideology, and religion. He's originally from Hong Kong, but grew up in Vancouver. Here is part two with Eric Kaufman. The prevailing illiberal environment on campuses is not new. I experienced it at the end of the 1980s, the start of the 1990s. Back then, it was a reaction by the left to Reagan, Thatcher, and Mulroney. Left-wing student activists graduated and climbed the ladder into government and the corporate world. With them, they brought an ideology that has mutated into something else. Is it uh, partly because of uh, communications tools, um, social media? Has that been a reason why it has become mainstream? Yeah, I think, and and first of all, I'm really glad you brought up the late 80s, early 90s. We were both, again, coming of age in the university system at the same time, and I was very much aware of of all of those things. And certainly when the closing of the American mind, um, when when that book came out in, in 1987, and I'm trying to remember now the, the name of the author, and I, but anyway, it was a very important book shedding light on this phenomenon and and then the speech code movement which really takes off you know 300 u.s campuses by 1990 had these speech codes regulating what students are allowed to say um that that is uh, in, in ideological terms very similar to where we are today so the ideas haven't really changed much and i think you could go back to the in fact the late 60s 
student campus protests to see the origins of these ideas. But what has changed is, of course, the um, the amplitude is a quantitative change, not a qualitative change. The shift from political correctness to woke is really about a quantitative scaling up. Now, partly that's just more graduates of radical disciplines, the grievance studies disciplines, whether that be gender, race, et cetera, queer studies, but also um, the new technology, you know, social media allows ideas which had already which were already fairly current on university campuses in terms not the students as much as the uh, radical academics those ideas can then break off campus in the mid 2010s because you're getting interaction on social media between journalists and academics the other thing you get is a shift in the journalism model to clickbait rather than classified ads emphasizing emotion and partisanship much more than had been the case uh, and and emphasizing driving traffic on social media. And so what that does is it puts a premium on these outrage stories, uh, cultural stories that are based around identity. And, and that then transmits to younger people through pop culture, um, a new set of values. And you see that in the survey data that the younger people are becoming a lot more moral ab morally absolutist than they would have been. So comparing say 2016 and 2000, an 18 year old and, 2016 was just much less tolerant than an 18-year-old in 2000, even with the same politics. And so, yeah, social media and, and clickbait, the new media model really just oxygenates this whole process. And then what happens is you get a spreading, and then this spills off campus, you get... Um, you know, obviously Trump derangement syndrome is part of this, but that, you know, this, for example, the number of P stories using the term white supremacy just explodes after... 2015-16. Uh, the number of people who think, you know, racism is a huge problem in America, you know, that explodes. The number of people who think that police shooting, you know, all of these things which are essentially moral panics that are created in the media, um, what that represents is sort of radical, critical race theory, radical gender theory coming off campus, uh, becoming vulgarized and popularized, um, whether the, in the guise of, whether that be in the guise of terms like white privilege or um, white supremacy or or in the guise of, you know, panics uh, around, you know, in Canada with the residential schools in the U.S. with George Floyd, BLM moment. Uh, but in all these cases, you just have people almost, well, it's almost like a mass psychosis, um, you know, and in the, obviously the case of Canada where there, you know, there's this whole narrative around mass graves and genocide is just, it's almost at a Pizzagate level. And yet somehow, that seems to have swept the country. Um, something similar with the police shootings in the U.S., you know, something like 10 to 15 uh, unarmed Black people shot by police officers in a year. Most people who who identify as very liberal would say that number is between 1,000 and 10,000. That's, a, again, just an example of the kind of uh, panic that seemed to ensue as a result of I would argue the new media and social media ecosystem. You are mentioning, of course, earlier the closing of the American mind, uh, how higher education has failed democracy and impoverished the souls of today's students. That the author was uh, Alan Bloom. Right, Bloom. And, yeah, uh, you, you've been the author of a number of books yourself. You've got one coming out in 2024 that you mentioned. Uh, main reason why I wanted to talk to you uh, is your other big project. Uh, you, you at the University of Buckingham. The Center for Heterodox Social Science, where you're offering uh, the, the launch course, Woke, The Origins, Dynamics, and Implications of an I Elite Ideology. 
Um, what what is your goal with the uh, new Center for Heterodox Social Science and uh, and also the the course looking at uh, woke uh, how it came to be and and what it really is. Yeah, well, I think the context for this is the fact that there are orthodoxies in the social sciences and humanities now in Western academia in universities that essentially incentivize people to only look at certain problems and, and to look at them through a particular lens and not to explore the full range of potential explanations. So for example, and, and what that does is it actually distorts knowledge, the knowledge we teach, the, the knowledge we gain through science. And, and again, an example of, of that could be, for example, uh, if we see a gap in earnings between black and white or male and female, there's one allowable explanation, which is uh, structural discrimination. Of course, structural discrimination is not something that is generally measured. It's not a scientific concept in the sense that you can measure it and falsify it. You know, all, all it is is, oh, well, there's a disparity, therefore there must be discrimination. I mean, a scientific approach would be to say, well, there's a gap. Let's look at 10 different variables that might explain that gap. Let's test them, measure them, and decide which one's best account for this discrepancy. And that's not the way uh, social science works nowadays. Um, so what I, the aim here is just to say, well, we're going to simply take a whole bunch of these issues that have been uh, essentially where the truth has been distorted by orthodoxy, and we're going to try and subject them to uh, a wider range of analyses. Now, we it could be that the orthodoxy is correct. I mean, this is the point, right? I mean, it may be the orthodoxy is right, but we're going to actually want to be able to test that, whether that's true. The course on woke, again, woke is another example of uh, I think woke actually is a useful scientific term. It's not just a pejorative. It can be used as a pejorative and, and used in a sloppy way. But actually, if we just focus it on the definition I use, which is the making sacred of historically marginalized race, gender, and sexual identity groups, that definition of woke, then we can use that to, I think, develop, um, look at this as an ideology. It's often passed off as just being nice or, uh, you know, good manners or whatever. But actually, if you, it really is an ideology similar to any other ideology like liberalism or socialism or whatever. Um, but it's not being studied partly because that would be too controversial, and that and, and it's not being studied even though it is changing politics. Even though more academics have been fired uh, in the in during this period known as the Great Awakening by Matthew Iglesias, uh, but. Uh, a Vox journalist, but this idea of the Great Awakening, which has been since 2015, we've seen more academics fired than during the McCarthy period. Um, there, so in a way, the speech suppression, and also if you if you talk, look at survey data, uh, survey data in this period shows much worse speech suppression even than the McCarthyite period. So as Greg Lukianoff and, and Ricky Schlott mentioned in their book, historians are going to be studying this the way they studied Red Scare, McCarthyism, and other periods in American history. And yet um, there's nothing on this being taught. And so there's a huge gap. Now this is, I wanted to make this a public open online course. People in Canada can take it. People anywhere in the world could take this course. Um, so it's going to be a 15 lecture course, and it's it's not going to be political about me saying I don't like woke. It's going to be about what are the intellectual origins of this? What is the pub? How does the public opinion look by gender, by age, by education, and, and what's the electoral uh, consequences of the politics of the culture war? 
Um, and then we'll look at the philosophy and and uh, questions around speech boundaries and, and so on. Um, so yeah, that's really what the course is about, but it it is taking this as an ideology that must be studied like fascism, like communism, like any other ideology uh, in its own right. Before Starts in January. <laughs> so. Well, before I let you go, um, how do people find out about how to apply and to, to join in the course, uh, Woke, the Origins, Dynamics, and Implications of an Elite Ideology? You want to, if you go to my Twitter, which is at uh, E-P-K-A-U-F-M or E-P-K-A-U-F-M, so at E-P-K-A-U-F-M uh, and the pinned tweet, We'll give you a link to uh, to to express interest. We're, we're if you just go there um, and then just follow the links. Uh, we hope to see you on the course. That was my guest, Eric Kaufman, professor of politics at the University of Buckingham and the new Center for Heterodox Social Science in London. Thanks a lot, and uh, you know, keep up the good work. News podcast for Around the Rim. We look at news headlines around the Pacific Rim. In the San Francisco Standard, protesters pepper sprayed outside Xi Jinping's APEC San Francisco Hotel as fights break out. Hundreds of pro-China and anti-Chinese Communist Party protesters held dueling rallies Thursday, waving flags and often yelling at each other on opposite sides of 3rd Street between Market and Jesse Streets outside the hotel. Quote, CCP is like Nazi, like Hitler said protester Tony Tang, pointing to a flag of the People's Republic of China, which was cut up and had a swastika painted on it. In the Taiwan news, Austin says Biden-Xi summit will not impact U.S. arms sales to Taiwan. Biden and Xi met for four hours on the sidelines of the APEC summit in San Francisco, during which they agreed to resume dialogue on defense. In response, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on Thursday said that he was encouraged by the news that military-to-military communications are to be resumed. Austin said that the U.S. will remain alert to the threats posed by China. He also labeled Beijing's unilateral change in the Taiwan Strait status quo as, quote, undesirable, and expressed concern that any conflict that breaks out would not only impact the region, but the entire world. In Kyoto News, Japan PM hopes to work with China's Xi for positive bilateral ties. The issue of Japanese nationals detained in China has yet to be resolved. Most recently, an employee of Japanese drug maker Astella's Pharma Inc. was arrested in October for alleged espionage. Prime Minister Kishida has stuck to the stance that he will, quote, say what needs to be said to China, a key trading partner for Japan. This year marks the 45th anniversary of the signing of the Bilateral Peace and Friendship Treaty between the Asian neighbors. That's Around the Rim on this edition of the Breaker.News podcast. Now it's time on the Breaker.News podcast for Cascadia Calling. We look at news headlines around the Pacific Northwest. In the Oregonian, Portland hate crime defendant who went on the run avoids prison in plea deal. A judge Tuesday sentenced a man to probation instead of prison more than two years after he wielded a knife at a Filipino-American stranger, uttered an anti-Asian slur, and pummeled the stranger's head, causing a brain injury. The man later fled to Idaho before the Oregonian's reporting led to his arrest. Mark Aurelius Franklin should have been sentenced to 15 to 18 months based on guidelines. However, Franklin was sentenced to 110 days time served while waiting in jail. In King 5, Ken Griffey Jr.'s shower slippers with faded 24 are on the market. 
The one-of-a-kind piece of Seattle Mariners history is described as an unusual memento, showing nice use. The starting bid is set at $200 with two days left at the Leland's.com auction house. In the Times Colonist, Tofino Council supports changing beach name to Tinwis. Tlalocuat Nation will now apply to the province's geographical names office to change the name of Mackenzie Beach. An online petition calling for the change has garnered more than 2,000 signatures. Tinwis means calm waters in the language of the local Tlalocuat Nation, which combines tin, meaning calm, and whiz, meaning beach. That's Cascadia calling on this edition of the Breaker.News podcast. Every week we end the Breaker.News podcast on a tasty note by awarding the goodness of a virtual Nanamo bar to people making a difference. A virtual version of the province's favorite dessert bar goes this week to British Columbians of every culture. It's Multiculturalism Week in BC from November 19th to 25th. You can nominate someone for a virtual Nanamo bar. Send me an email to bob at thebreaker.news. Spruce Hill Contracting, Custom Homes and Renovations. Find more information at sprucehill.ca. I, Justin P.J. Trudeau. Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways. Steve Chase, Globe and Mail. Would you describe Xi Jinping as a dictator? Look. China's a one-party state. I don't think anyone would call it a democracy. In 2013, you described uh, China as a basic dictatorship. Mr. Xi was already in charge. The level of, of uh, admiration I actually have for China, um, because their you know, basic dictatorship is allowing them uh, to actually turn their economy around on a dime and say, we need to go green as fast as we need to start you know, investing in solar. I mean, there is a flexibility that I know Stephen Harper must dream about of having a dictatorship that he could do everything he wanted. Uh, that I find quite interesting. Mr. Biden, uh, the President of the United States, which is our security guarantor, also called him a dictator. Why won't you call him that? Listen, uh, we can get into uh, all sorts of different uh, uh, definitions. The fact is, He's not running a democracy. It's an authoritarian state. I, Justin P.J. Trudeau. Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways. for the Breaker.News podcast for the week of November 19th, 2023. I'm Bob Mackin. Thanks for joining me. Did you know that on the 19th of November in 1969, the greatest soccer player of all time, Pele, scored his 1,000th goal?
Now you know. Send me your feedback. Send me your story ideas to bob at thebreaker.news. Bookmark thebreaker.news. You can also find us at thebreaker.ca. Sign up for the email newsletter and get updates to your inbox. If you're in Canada, you can't get Facebook updates due to the Trudeau Liberals Bill C-18, so why not subscribe to the free newsletter or follow The Breaker News on Twitter, also known as X. You can support The Breaker for as little as $2 a month. For more information, go to patreon.com slash thebreakernews. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thebreakernews. Until next week.